I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from the UAE. On Saturday's show, we spoke to U.S. presidential candidate for 2024, Professor Cornell West, who believes Joe Biden is a war criminal for the Gaza genocide. But there's another jail-threatened candidate whose U.S. Supreme Court appeal for immunity from prosecution deadline is today. He claims he could end the war in Gaza and on Russia through Ukraine and revitalize a suffering economy at home. And he's the favorite to be president, Donald Trump. A former Republican congressman's new book, Trump's War in Capitalism, though, exposes the catastrophe of Trump's last time in office. David Stockman, the Reagan administration's budget director, joins me now from Miami, Florida. Thank you so much, David, for uh, coming on. I suppose before we even go into the depths of what's an amazing tour de force of a book in terms of its analysis, if I can say that, um, polls show Trump uh, handles the economy, according to polls, better uh, better than any other, uh, better than Biden in the opinion polls. That's what people are thinking, as he clearly is the favorite, whether it runs from jail or where else. 20 points, he's in the lead to... Why, why do you differ from uh, that huge lead of uh, your fellow American uh, public? Well, uh, compared to the Biden period, uh, it isn't much to say that it was better. But the fact is, uh, there wasn't any great MAGA economy in 2017 to 2020. That is just one large myth and boast that Donald Trump and his MAGA supporters have uh, promulgated, uh, you know, month after month, year after year, and it wasn't true. And of course, he wasn't even remotely a economic conservative. He's the biggest spender we ever had in the Oval Office. He was constantly uh, harassing the Fed to make uh, uh, money even easier to print even more, to push interest rates even closer to zero. Uh, he obviously shut down the whole economy arbitrarily and in an unconstitutional matter with the COVID lockdowns in the spring of 2020. So when you put all that together, uh, my conclusion was uh, he's the last guy we should be nominating to uh, address the huge problems facing the country in 2024. But the MAGA Republicans and Republicans generally said, yeah, uh, you know, he's uh, a loudmouth, boastful, egomaniac, uh, but uh, he, he gave us a good economy. And uh, one of the purposes of my book was to show that wasn't true. I, I take four or five or six major metrics that, uh, you know, assess uh, the performance of the economy compare it to all the presidents since Harry Truman, that's 11 presidents, and he comes out on the bottom. Uh, we don't need to go into all the data, but the big picture is what was the economic growth rate during Trump's four years? It was 1.5% per year, which is half, barely half of the 3% average for all presidents, the 5% average during the Nixon or during the Johnson Kennedy administration in the 60s, three and a half percent during Reagan, uh, even uh, more than uh, the two percent growth uh, during Obama. If to which, to which of course, as we know, he would say it was uh, all about COVID. But in the book, you make for the case that uh, and you served President Reagan, the very controversial president who's. Uh, foreign policy lingers today in the global south and uh, and uh, amongst the working classes of flyover America, as you call it in, in your book, uh, you make the case for saying, actually, it doesn't matter who's the president. It's the Federal Reserve, again and again in this book. Explain why that's the yeah. case. 
Well, uh, I mean, ultimately, we've had so much uh, increase in the public debt, so much spending that wasn't paid for, that we would have had an economic crisis long ago if the Fed had not monetized all the debt. In other words, the massive bond buying that it did month after month after month was the only thing that kept interest rates from uh, you know, exploding higher. But it, it wasn't a permanent solution. It was simply building up an inflationary bubble, both on Wall Street and on the Main Street economy that finally let loose, as we know, in the last couple of years, we got 40-year high inflation. And now uh, they're struggling to try to somehow bring it uh, down without uh, sending the economy into the ditch. All of that stems from bad monetary policy. But the thing is, if you're going to change the direction of the country, you need a house cleaning at the Fed and Trump went the other way. He complained constantly, practically weekly, that the Fed was uh, not easy enough, that it needed to cut rates, not get them back to some kind of normal level, that it needed to keep monetizing these huge debts that it was uh, he was creating uh, when we should have been going the opposite direction. Now, the one point that I make in my book is uh, during Trump's four years, and that wasn't long, but it's a good test, the public debt in the United States went from $20 trillion to $28 trillion. That's an $8 trillion gain. Again, of course, he would say COVID. Sorry to interrupt again. And, you know, in the long run, as regards uh, uh, this kind of uh, money printing or quantitative easing, as your hate figure in this book, Keynes would have said, we're all going to be dead anyway. Um, you, yeah. you say also, though, uh, even if someone does support uh, that historic uh, policy of the United States of printing money, uh, that the money goes to the richest in society. Yeah, overwhelmingly, all the Fed uh, money printing that accommodated all this spending and uh, fueled this bubble basically ended up with the top 1% or at most the top 10% of households that own 93% of the stock. So if we look at just during Trump's term, the average household in the top 1% gained 10 million worth of uh, net worth. The average household in the bottom 50% gained $1,800. So no, so no surprise then. No surprise that there are obviously going to be uh, masses of voters who uh, think that Trump has learned his lesson. I remember a Venezuelan president before Chavez, who was completely corrupt, Perez, and they said, why are you voting again for the same guy? Because he's stolen enough last time. Similarly, yeah. is that your explanation as to why so many people in Flyover America, as you depicted, want him back again, even though they didn't benefit well, and the richest in America benefited. Well, I don't know that they want Trump back so much as they want a fundamental change in the direction of policy. They know that, uh, the you know, the elites uh, on the, you know, what I call the bicoastal elites, benefit from all of the empire abroad and all the spending and the military industrial complex and all of the accommodation of uh, the corporate uh, interests uh, that happen in Washington. Uh, they know that uh, the Fed isn't necessarily making life any easier for them, so they want to change. Unfortunately, Donald Trump is the wrong answer because he really is clueless as to uh, the underlying uh, cause of why there's so much distress in uh, flyover America. 
basically, we've inflated our economy so much that it's not competitive in the world. So we've offshored a huge share of our industrial base, millions of good paying jobs. Uh, that's part of the problem. It stems uh, from the Fed. Now, Trump went in there and said, well, it's just due to nefarious governments in China and elsewhere and bad people in Washington who negotiated bad deals. And if you only put him in charge, he would fix everything. Well, and and you make the case that actually Trump funded China during his term, de facto. Yeah, exactly. And even more, because today, after all of the uh, tariffs that he put on, which are being paid by the American consumer, not by China, we have an even bigger trade deficit today with China than we had in 2017 when he said he was going to fix the problem. The deficit with Mexico today is twice the size it was when he started. And when he started, we had a balance with Canada, and today uh, we have a large deficit. So none of the nostrums that he proposed were accurate. None of his policies helped. They made them worse. And uh, I'm... Uh, so what, Trump might as well have been a Chinese communist spy while he was in power? Yeah. That's what well, you're saying you know, in the book. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would necessarily interpret it that way. But what I am saying is that we've got to get back to basics in this country. We need to get these deficits under control and eliminated. And we have to stop the public debt from continuing to uh, surge at the rate that it's been going. You know, we're going to be at 50 trillion of public debt by early in the next decade. Uh, and with Trump, it's likely to be even uh, more. Okay, so, I, I want to explore some of the nuances there in a bit. But I just want to take a quick detour, and that is something that Trump talks about uh, increasingly. Robert F. Kennedy certainly talks about it, as does Cornell West. The uh, warfare state, as you describe it, how much do you see uh, these presidential contenders as uh, being proxies of this warfare state as the United States as the Biden administration yeah. desires to uh, print loads of money and send it to Zelensky in uh, Ukraine or to Israel. Well, you know, obviously, uh, uh, Biden is a tool of the warfare state, if you want to call that, the, the deep state. Uh, you know, what he's doing in Ukraine is absolutely insane. Uh, this uh, bill before the Congress to add another $100 billion of foreign aid to Ukraine, Israel, and the rest of them uh, is totally unaffordable. That's the first point. Trump talks a good game. He, he sounds like he's for America first. He sounds like he wants to end the forever wars, but he has no capability to execute anything. When he was president, he inherited a defense budget that was nearly $600 billion. It was already badly bloated. He should have taken an axe to it and cut out $100, $200 billion. But instead, he pushed it to $750 billion. And then Biden came in. You know, I call it the uniparty, uh, the war party in both the Democrat and Republican versions, and it's taken it to $900 billion. Now, I have no confidence that Trump would cut a dime out of the defense budget. He thinks that if he, you know, has a big, big stick, he can go around the world uh, clubbing everybody into submission or cleverly negotiating, uh, you know, uh, an end to some of these problems. Well, he negotiated with a lot of people, and as far as I can tell, during four years, very little happened. In fact, look at today. We have uh, soldiers in harm's way in Iraq, 
and in Syria. What the hell are they doing there? <laughs> well, you know, Trump said we should end these forever wars. He said, let's get the troops out of Syria. There's two, still 2,000 people there. But isn't the point so that he's now learned his, I mean, quite apart from, as you say, the Fed having the power over the monetary expansion, isn't, uh, isn't the fact going to be that he learned from last time round? I mean, John Bolton, last time he was on this show, obviously hates Donald Trump and uh, yeah. wrote a book uh, talking about how he hates him. And Trump, in reply, has basically said he got the wrong man as his national security advisor. This time around, you know, is he going to be different? I mean, you know he wants Tucker Carlson maybe as a, as a veep. Tucker Carlson is an isolationist. He's against the big warfare state. Yeah, well, that, that's true. But I have very little confidence that Donald Trump ever learns anything for more than a day or two. He slides by the seat of his ample britches. Whatever uh, idea possesses him at the moment, uh, he uh, pursues without any serious reflection or research or uh, homework. And so I have no confidence that he's learned anything. I mean, after all, he was talking about America first, uh, bringing the empire home stopping the forever wars throughout the campaign in 2016 in his early uh, days in the White House. And who did he bring into the top positions? John Bolton, who is a total neocon, warmongering, you know, global hegemonist, and Mike Pompeo, who's even worse. And he puts one in the CIA, uh, the other is national security advisor, and then rewards Pompeo by making him secretary of state. This tells me you're dealing with someone who doesn't have any ability to focus, to think things through, and, and make uh, decisions that are going to be uh, effective. So I don't want another four years of learning experience for Donald Trump. David Stockman, I'll, I'll stop you there. More from the uh, Reagan's budget director and the author of Trump's War on Capitalism after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the former U.S. budget and management director under Reagan and author of the new book, Trump's War on Capitalism. David, we were talking about, uh, well, you were talking to me about how uh, clearly you, you're no fan of Trump personally, if uh, anything else. Uh, Joe Biden, and of course, that's the main choice, and you're no fan of his either, arguably, you're backing Robert F. Kennedy. Joe Biden obviously obsessed with this border as well. Explain how your book uh, delineates the myth of uh, any kind of, any kind of truth, actually in the public debate in your country when it comes to immigration and why you need so many immigrants for the United States economy to perform in the future and without them, how your economy is in danger of collapse? Well, you know, first of all, it's a matter of basic demographics. The native-born workforce stopped growing in 2015, a decade ago, and it will be shrinking at a pretty goodly rate as far as the eye can see. Now, secondly, we know from economic history and logic that about half of economic growth comes from more labor, from more workers, from more hours employed in the economy. Well, unless we have some way to increase the size of our labor force, su uh, supplement the declining uh, uh, hours that we're going to get from the native born, our economy is going to stagnate 
even as uh, we head towards 100 million retirees and the baby boom uh, in their uh, later years. So th that's the fundamentals that we're dealing with. The problem is we have a totally broken immigration system that uh, says if you uh, are skilled uh, and you got a PhD and you're a high tech uh, guru, well, Google can get you in through one of the many categories that are in our immigration system for skilled labor. But if you're just an uh, unskilled or low-skilled uh, worker uh, that we desperately need in this country, you can't get in at all. There's only 4,000 slots a year when we need millions of people. So what you have to do instead, and this is what the crisis is all about, is basically pretend that you're an asylee, uh, an asylum seeker, a refugee from Mexico or El Salvador or Guatemala or elsewhere uh, in the Western Hemisphere, come to the Texas border, break the law, get arrested, and get in the queue uh, of a, you know, overburdened uh, court system uh, to try to get asylum on the grounds that it's too dangerous to go back and home. And clearly in the book, you, you make the case for guest passes and a, and a sort of yeah. more adult version of the, of the system. I understand... Yeah. Uh, these ideas are not there even on uh, pro-Biden, so-called progressive, who knows, woke type of media. Have you been allowed to talk about this in the Wall Street Journal, CNN, the New York Times? What's, what's going on with the... Are they racist? Are they bigoted? Do they just not like people from overseas? If they can't realize this is a practical thing, it's not even to do with yeah. morality from where you're coming from? Well, the liberals and the Biden people sort of like the asylum-based system because they think ultimately these people won't come to America unless uh, they're accommodated through the asylum system and they'll be grateful and uh, therefore they'll vote democratic. That's their whole view. On the other hand, they're so beholden to organized labor that they can't talk about the logical alternative, a large-scale guest worker program, where people wouldn't come to the Rio Grande River or to the border and try to break through. They would simply go to the consulate in their country, Mexico or Costa Rica, uh, apply for a guest worker permit if they were uh, screened and uh, passed uh, and uh, could make contact with a U.S. employer, they they could come to the United States. There wouldn't be any crisis at the border, but the liberals can't live with a guest worker program because organized labor is against it. Now, the Republicans, they're looking for an issue, uh, and they don't want any more, quote, Democrat voters coming to America. So, uh, you know, they uh, create all of this hysteria, about, uh, you know, uh, the border... Crime and, and drugs, and you also invaded. explain why that's... Uh, uh, actually, yeah. it, should be, it should be white Native Americans who should be deported under that yeah. idea in the book. Yeah. Um, OK, but uh, uh, you know that uh, if the Fed, as you make the case for, is running uh, everyone's livelihoods, in effect, uh, you must think that uh, if you take the morality out of it, a person sitting in the Oval Office will think, well, the way to increase manufacturing jobs is to uh, order the printing of money to uh, send to Zelensky in Ukraine, to send it to Netanyahu, to kill other people, to kill Palestinians, to kill Ukrainians, actually, and Russians, and that will stimulate the war economy in the United States. And that's the only way 
that you have any power as a president? Is that why the military-industrial complex continues so many years after Eisenhower to be the what Biden supports? We don't know really about Trump as much, but you, yeah. you make the case that he'd do the same. Well, uh, the military-industrial complex thrives. We have a $900 billion defense budget that's absurd. Uh, in fact, if you count everything, security assistance, foreign aid, you know, international operations of the State Department and National Endowment for Democracy and all the rest, it's $1.3 trillion. It's probably double or even triple what we uh, really need. So why is it there? Because there's so much money flowing through what you would call the national security complex that it basically creates its own lobby. All the think tanks, all the NGOs, all the lobbyists in the beltways, beltway, all the military industrial complex uh, contractors all uh, put their shoulder behind keeping that budget where it is today and rising uh, you know, uh, steadily year after year. So it is a political problem that can't be solved until we get a president. And this is why I'm so strongly for RFK, Robert Kennedy Jr., who says enough is enough. We're bringing the empire home. We don't need 11 carrier battle groups uh, swarming around the globe looking for trouble. We don't need 180 bases. We don't need to be policing the Red Sea or the Straits of Taiwan. And we certainly don't need to be running a proxy I, I, war. Sorry to interrupt. I know he wrote the forward to this book, but you know he said pour as much money into Israel against Palestine as it takes. I don't know whether you've had a chat with him since uh, since he wrote the forward of your no. book, because Kennedy wants more yeah, of the I alleged mean, genocide in Gaza. Yeah, well, you know, obviously you're never going to have 100% agreement with anyone. I think his case is more that Hamas is a bunch of bad guys, and we shouldn't uh, uh, overlook that, and I think he's right about that. But I don't think Israel needs a lot of money from the United States. Uh, what I point out in some things I've written is they're spending only 5% of GDP on defense. Back when they had a true existential crisis in the 70s, at the time of the Yom Kippur War, they were spending 20%. So they're taking the USA for a ride? Yeah, a couple percent more of taxation on their people to provide the security that Netanyahu and that clack thinks they need uh, is what ought to happen here, uh, rather than asking the, you know, the U.S. taxpayer to cough up another $15 billion that they don't need because they can get from their own resources and we can't afford because we're already uh, totally bankrupt. So I disagree about aid uh, to Israel, uh, but that's a very small uh, piece of okay. the big picture where I think he's totally correct. But as you say, no one can agree totally with uh, everything uh, people say. But you know, in uh, your great memoir, Triumph of Politics, you say something about Reagan being converted by a congressman, Jack Kemp, in 1980 to reduce the top rate of uh, tax and change the ideas of Reagan. You obviously learned a lot of lessons from being in that administration. As I said, it's known more for, you know, arguable genocide in so many foreign policy uh, areas and for impoverishing the United States. You learned so much since then, <laughs> clearly, as your yeah. books have uh, changed in their, in their ideas. When you, when you say Washington doesn't need NATO to protect our allies in Europe because they are not facing any threat that can't be handled by their own ways and means, and go on to say the whole disaster in Ukraine today is rooted in the war party's mindless expansion of NATO, that is the same policy as Cornel West, and that is the same policy as Donald Trump 
And that is, of course, the policy of the person who's supporting Robert F. Kennedy. Why can't all these different elements get together and defeat the war party? Yeah, because they're all over the lot. Uh, Robert Kennedy is there and uh, Corey West is there. But Trump had the view that, well, they're cheating us. He didn't argue that the NATO's combined defense budget of $1.25 trillion isn't necessary. He was basically saying they should spend more so we don't have to spend as much. So Yeah, but now, now those lobbyists aren't backing him, are they? Which is why there's constant anti-Trump propagandists Propaganda, yeah, so but, the MAGA people but let's say. Go, you know, but we, we need to go back to the beginning. Uh, Gorbachev has promised 1989 in return for acquiescing to the, you know, uh, unification of Germany that NATO wouldn't move uh, an inch to the east. We know all that. And then for the next 25 years, NATO has been moving and it's doubled in size. And we've even tried to put former republics of the old Soviet Union into NATO. That's what Ukraine was about, Georgia and so forth. None of that is necessary. Uh, there is no evidence whatsoever that uh, that Putin is trying to reconstitute the old Soviet Union. What you have in the Ukraine is a civil war over territorial uh, governance that uh, has nothing to do uh, with NATO or Western Europe or even Poland or the Baltic states, for that matter. So when you consider the fact that NATO's countries, all, all 31 of them, have a GDP of $46 trillion, and Russia has a GDP of $2 trillion, and you understand that in the modern world, a military threat is grounded in industrial might, industrial uh, throw weight and capacity, is pretty obvious that there is no uh, real uh, to the NATO countries and certainly not to the mainland of North America from you Russia. Know, you know, David, yeah. talking like that is like, uh, I mean, what do you think about how Tucker Carlson is being treated? He's being called a traitor in your country for even uh, trying to say or trying to elicit, and he has said similar things as you've just said, trying to make the points that you just made. Yeah, well, I don't know. We're in crazy times. Richard Nixon went to Moscow and uh, met with Brezhnev, as I remember right. <laughs> he wasn't uh, considered a traitor. He went to China and met with Mao. He wasn't considered a traitor. Back in the day, even in the Cold War, there was an idea that there was something like peaceful coexistence, and some were more hawkish about it, and others were more dovish. And here we have basically a totally different ideology. The liberals hate Donald Trump so much. I have no use for him, but they hate him so much that they see Putin as his enabler, as some kind of doppelganger. And when they think about uh, Putin, uh, they're seeing red uh, in the guise of Donald Trump. And so therefore have totally irrational attitudes uh, about uh, Russia, about Putin, about foreign policy, about the proxy war in the Ukraine and and uh, NATO uh, and the whole whole rest of it. I don't think, uh, unfortunately, Trump's going to unwind that, uh, sort that out, because uh, he's lazy. <laughs> he's he's uninformed. He's historically illiterate. He's lazy, and uh, he's going to be talked into all kinds of digressions and uh, diversions when he should be saying uh, the Cold War ended three decades ago, NATO is done, let's unwind it and let's, uh, you know, begin to try to find some way 
to bring the world to a uh, kind of peaceful status quo. Well, Trump says he's great and uh, he'll bring about uh, peace and deny all your accusations. David Stockman, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Trump's war on capitalism is out now. That's it for the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Saturday. Until then, keep in touch via all our social media. If it's not censored in your country, head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday.